0: Chapter five Scattered Israel to be gathered Hear the word of the Lord, O ye nations, and declare it in the Isles afar off, and say He that scattered Israel will gather him, and keep him as a shepherd doth his flock Jeremiah thirty one ten. The text which heads this page is remarkably full and comprehensive. It contains both history and prophecy. It speaks of the scattering of Israel. This is history. It speaks of the gathering of Israel. This is prophecy. It demands the attention of both the Jew and the Gentile. To the Jew it holds out a hope. Israel, it says, will be gathered. On the Gentile it lays a command. Hear the word of the Lord, it says, O ye nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, He that scattered Israel will gather him. The whole body of Gentile Christendom is specially addressed in this text. There is no evading this conclusion with any fair interpretation of Scripture. We ourselves are among the nations to whom Jeremiah speaks. To us is delegated a portion of the duty which he here sets forth. The text is the Lord's voice to all the churches of Christ among the Gentiles. It is a voice to the churches of England, Scotland, and Ireland. It is a voice to the churches of Germany, Switzerland, Sweden, Holland, Denmark, and America. It is a voice to all Christendom. And what does the voice say? It commands us to proclaim far and wide the will of God concerning the Jewish nation. It tells us to remind one another of God's past and future dealings with Israel. He that scattered Israel will gather him. I ask for your serious attention. While I try to explain the Jewish subject to you in a connected and condensed form, I propose to show you from Scripture the past, the present, and the future of Israel. I know few texts in the Bible which contain such a complete summary of the subject as this one from Jeremiah. I will attempt to unfold this text. I ask you not to dismiss the subject as speculative, fanciful, or unprofitable. The world is growing old. The last days are come upon us. The foundations of the earth are out of order. The ancient institutions of society are wearing out and falling to pieces. The end of all things is at hand. Surely it is fitting for a wise person at a time like this to turn to the pages of prophecy and inquire what is yet to come. At a time like this, the declarations of God concerning his people Israel ought to be carefully weighed and examined scripture till the time of the end says daniel the wise shall understand daniel 12 9 to 10 there are four points i want to keep our attention on as we consider the words from our text in jeremiah one the meaning of the word israel both here and elsewhere in scripture two the present condition of israel 3 the future prospects for israel and 4 the duty which gentile churches owe to israel the meaning of the word israel the definition of terms is of first importance in theology unless we explain the meaning of the words we use in our religious statements our arguments are often wasted and we seem like men beating the air. The word Israel is used nearly 700 times in the Bible. I can only discover three senses in which it is used. First, it is one of the names of Jacob, the father of the twelve tribes, a name specially given to him by God. Second, it is a name given to the ten tribes which separated from Judah and Benjamin in the days of Rehoboam and became a distinct kingdom. This kingdom is often called Israel in contradistinction to the kingdom of Judah. And third, it is a name given to the whole Jewish nation, to all members of the twelve tribes which sprung from Jacob and were brought out of Egypt into the land of Canaan. This is by far the most common use of the word in the Bible. It is the only signification in which I can find the word Israel used throughout the whole New Testament. It is the same in which the word is used in a text which I am considering this day. That Israel, which God has scattered and will yet gather again, is the whole Jewish nation. Now, why do I dwell upon this point? To some it may appear a mere waste of time and words to say so much about it the things I have been saying sound to them like truisms. That Israel means Israel is a matter on which they never felt a doubt. If this is the mind of any of you, I am thankful for it. But unhappily, there are many Christians who do not see the subject with your eyes, and for their sakes I must dwell on this point a little longer. For many centuries there has prevailed in the churches of Christ a strange and, to my mind, an unjustified way of dealing with this word Israel. It has been interpreted in many passages of the Psalms and prophets as if it meant nothing more than Christian believers. Have promises been held out to Israel? We have been told continually that they are addressed to Gentile saints. Have glorious things been described as laid up in store for Israel? We have been incessantly told that they describe the victories and triumphs of the gospel in Christian churches. There are too many proofs of these things to require quotation. You cannot read most commentaries and popular hymns without seeing this system of interpretation. I have protested against that system for a long time, and i hope i will protest as long as i live i do not deny that israel was a distinctive people and that god's relationship with israel was also meant to be a type of his relationship with his believing people all over the world i do not forget that it is written as in water face answereth to face so the heart of man to man proverbs 27:19 and that whatever spiritual truths are taught in prophecy concerning Israelite hearts are also applicable to the hearts of Gentiles. It should be most distinctly understood that God's dealings with individual Jews and Gentiles are precisely one and the same. Without repentance, faith in Christ, and holiness of heart, no individual Jew or Gentile will ever be saved. What I protest is the habit of allegorizing plain sayings of the Word of God concerning the future history of the nation of Israel, and explaining away the fullness of their contents in order to accommodate them to the Gentile church. I believe the habit is unwarranted by anything in Scripture and draws after it a long train of evil consequences. Where, I ask, in the whole New Testament? do we find any plain authority for applying the word Israel to anyone but the nation of Israel? I can find none. On the contrary, I observe that when the Apostle Paul quotes Old Testament prophecies about the privileges of the Gentiles in gospel times, he is careful to quote texts which specially mention the Gentiles by name. The fifteenth chapter of the Epistle to the Romans is a striking illustration of what I mean. We are often told in the New Testament that under the gospel, believing Gentiles are fellow heirs and partakers of the same hope with believing Jews, Ephesians 3, 6. But I cannot see anywhere at all that believing Gentiles may be called Israelites. We can see in many Christian writers a loose system of interpreting the language of the Psalms and Prophets and an exaggerated expectation of universal conversion of the world by the preaching of the gospel. To what can we attribute this? To nothing so much, I believe, as to the habit of inaccurately interpreting the word Israel, and to the consequent application of promises to the Gentile churches, with which they have nothing to do. The least errors in theology always bear fruit. No one ever accepts an incorrect principle of interpreting Scripture without that principle entailing awkward consequences and coloring the whole tone of his religion. I will leave this part of my subject now, but I am sure that its importance cannot be overrated. In fact, a right understanding of it lies at the very root of the whole Jewish subject and of the prophecies concerning the Jews. The duty which Christians owe to Israel as a nation will never be clearly understood until Christians clearly see the place that Israel occupies in Scripture. Before going any further, I will ask one plain practical question. I ask you to consider calmly what meaning you give to such words as Israel, Jacob, and the like when you meet with them in the Psalms and prophecies of the Old Testament. We live in a day when there are many Bible readers. There are many who search the Scriptures regularly and read through the Psalms and the Prophets once, if not twice, every year they live. Of course, you attach some meaning to the words I have just referred to. You place some sense upon them. Now, what is that sense? What is that meaning? Consider carefully that it is the right one. Accept a friendly exhortation this day. Cling to the literal sense of Bible words, and beware of departing from it except in cases of absolute necessity. Be wary of that system of allegorizing, spiritualizing, and accommodating which the school of Oregon first brought in and which has found such an unfortunate degree of favor in the church. In reading the authorized version of the English Bible, Do not put too much confidence in the headings of pages and tables of contents at beginnings of chapters, which I consider a most unhappy accompaniment to that admirable translation. Remember that those headings and tables of contents were invented by uninspired hands. In reading the prophets, they are sometimes not helps but real hindrances, and are less likely to assist the reader than to lead him astray. When reading the Psalms and the Prophets, fix it in your mind that Israel means Israel, and Zion means Zion, and Jerusalem means Jerusalem. And finally, whatever edification you derive from applying to your own soul the words which God addresses to His ancient people, never lose sight of the primary sense of the text. The Present Condition of Israel The expression used by Jeremiah describes exactly the state in which the Jews are at this day and have been for almost two thousand years. They are a scattered people. The armies of Assyria, Babylon, and Rome have, one after another, swept over the land of Israel and carried its inhabitants into captivity. Few, if any, of the ten tribes appear to have returned from the Assyrian captivity. Less than fifty thousand of Judah and Benjamin came back from the captivity of Babylon. From the last and worst captivity, when the Temple was burned and Jerusalem destroyed, there has been no return at all. For centuries, Israel has been dispersed over the four quarters of the globe. Like the wreck of some considerable ship, the Jews have been tossed to and fro on all waters and stranded in broken pieces on every shore. But though Israel has been scattered, Israel has not been destroyed. For almost two thousand years the Jews have continued as a separate people, without a king, without a land, without a territory, but never lost, never absorbed among other nations. They have often been trampled underfoot, but never shaken from the faith of their fathers. They have often been persecuted, but never destroyed. At this very moment, they are as distinct and peculiar a people as any people upon earth, an unanswerable argument in the way of the infidel, a puzzling difficulty in the way of politicians, a standing lesson to all the world. Romans, Danes, Saxons, Normans, Belgians, French, and Germans have all in turn settled on English soil. All have in turn lost their national distinctiveness all have in turn become part and parcel of the English nation after the lapse of a few hundred years. But it has never been so with the Jews. Dispersed as they are, there is a principle of cohesion among them which no circumstances have been able to melt. Scattered as they are, there is a national vitality among them which is stronger than that of any nation on earth. Go where you will, you will always find them. Settle where you please, in hot countries or in cold, you will find Jews. But go where you will and settle where you please, this wonderful people is always the same. Scattered as they are, few in number compared to those among whom they live, the Jews are always the Jews. Three thousand years ago, Balaam said, The people shall dwell alone and shall not be reckoned among the nations. Numbers 23, 9. Two thousand years ago, our Lord said, This generation shall not pass away till all be fulfilled. Luke 21, 32. We see these words made good before our eyes. But by whose hands was this scattering of Israel brought about? The text before us today expressly declares that it was the hand of God. It was not the armies of Tiglath Pileser. Or Shalmaneser, or Nebuchadnezzar, or Titus. They were only instruments in the hand of a far higher power. It was the God who orders all things in heaven and earth who dispersed the twelve tribes over the face of the earth. It was the same God who brought Israel out of Egypt with a high hand and mighty arm and planted them in Canaan, who plucked them up by the roots and made them wanderers among the nations. Hosea 9:17 Why did God send this heavy judgment upon Israel to what are we to attribute this extraordinary dispersion of a people who were so highly favored The question is a very useful one Let us consider the answer The Jews are a scattered people because of their many sins their hardness and obstinacy their impenitence and unbelief, their abuse of privileges and neglect of gifts, their rejection of prophets and messengers from heaven, and finally their refusal to receive the Lord Jesus Christ, the King's own Son, were the things which called down God's wrath upon them. These were the causes of their present dispersion. The vine which was brought out of Egypt bore wild grapes. The husbandman To whom the vineyard was rented out, did not give the fruit he owed to the Lord of the vineyard. The people that were brought out of the house of bondage rebelled against him by whom they were set free. As a result, the wrath of God rose until there was no remedy. He says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. Amos 3.2 They killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us, and they please not God, and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, to fill up their sins alway, for the wrath is come upon them to the uttermost. 1 Thessalonians 2.15-16. Israel was scattered to be a perpetual warning to the Gentile churches of Christ. The Jews are God's beacon or pillar of salt to all Christendom, and a silent standing lesson that all who profess to know God ought never to forget. They proclaim to all Christians God's hatred of spiritual pride and self-righteousness, God's high displeasure With those who exalt the traditions of men and depart from the Word, and God's hatred of formalism and ceremonialism. If you want to know how much God hates these things, you need only to look at the present condition of the Jews. For eighteen hundred years God has held them up before the eyes of the world and written His abhorrence of their sins in letters that all may read. I cannot leave this part of my subject without asking you to learn a practical lesson from the scattering of Israel. I urge you to remember the causes which led to their dispersion, and to be careful to not get even close to their peculiar sins. I am sure the warning is needed in these latter days. I am sure that the opinions which are boldly introduced and openly maintained by many religious teachers in all churches of Christendom, call loudly on all Christians to be on their guard. It is with good reason that our Lord said, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. Matthew 16, 6. Look to your own heart. Beware of dabbling with false doctrines. Churches are never safe unless their members know their individual responsibility. Let us each look to ourselves and take care of our own souls. The same God lives who scattered Israel because of Israel's sins. And what does He say to the churches of Christ today? He says, Be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed lest He also spare not thee. Romans 11, 20-21. THE FUTURE PROSPECTS FOR ISRAEL In taking up this branch of my subject, I feel that I am entering into the region of unfulfilled prophecy. I desire to do so with all reverence and with a deep sense of the many difficulties surrounding this department of theology, and the many diversities of opinion that prevail upon it. But the servant of God must call no man master on earth. Truth is never likely to be attained unless all ministers of Christ speak their opinions fully, freely, and unreservedly, and give men an opportunity to weigh what they teach. The difficulties surrounding many parts of unfulfilled prophecy are great, but two points stand out to me as plainly as if written by a sunbeam. One of these points is that the second personal advent of our Lord Jesus Christ will happen before the millennium. The other is the future literal gathering of the Jewish nation and their restoration to their own land. I do not tell anyone that these two truths are essential to salvation and that you cannot be saved unless you see them as I do. But I do tell people that these truths appear to me distinctly recorded in Holy Scripture and that the denial of them is as astonishing and incomprehensible to my mind as the denial of the divinity of Christ. Now, what does our text say about the future prospects of the Jews? What can we expect? It says, He that scattered Israel will gather him. That gathering is an event which plainly is yet to come. It could not apply in any sense to the ten tribes of Israel they have never been gathered in any way. Their scattering has never come to an end. It cannot be applied to the return of the remnant of Judah and Benjamin from the Babylon captivity. The language of the text makes such an application impossible. The text is addressed to the Gentiles, ye nations. The declaration they are commanded to make is, In the isles afar off. In the days of the Babylon captivity, the nations of the earth knew nothing of the word of the Lord. They were sunk in darkness and had not even heard the Lord's name. If Jeremiah had told them to proclaim the return of the Jews from Babylon under such circumstances, it would have been useless and absurd. There is but one fair and legitimate interpretation of the promise of the text. The event it declares is still future the gathering spoken of is a gathering which is yet to come. I believe that the interpretation I have just given is entirely in harmony with many other plain prophecies of Scripture. I do not have time to quote even a tenth of the texts that teach the same truth. Out of the sixteen prophets of the Old Testament, there are at least ten in which the gathering and restoration of the Jews in the latter days are expressly mentioned. From each of these ten I will take one testimony. I say one deliberately because I am anxious not to overload the subject with evidence. I would only remind you that the texts I am about to quote are only a small portion of the evidence that might be brought forward. 1. Hear what Isaiah says. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set His hand again the second time to recover the remnant of His people, which shall be left from Assyria and from Egypt, and from Pathros and from Cush, and from Elam and from Shinar, and from Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. And He shall set up an ensign for the nations, and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel, and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Isaiah eleven, eleven to twelve. Two, hear what Ezekiel says: "Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen whither they be gone, and will gather them on every side and bring them into their own land." Ezekiel thirty-seven twenty-one. Three, hear what Hosea says: "Then shall the children of Judah." and the children of Israel, be gathered together, and appoint themselves one head, and they shall come up out of the land. For great shall be the day of Jezreel. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king, and without a prince, and without a sacrifice, and without an image, and without an ephod, and without teraphim. Afterward shall the children of Israel return, and seek the Lord their God, and David their king and shall fear the Lord and His goodness in the latter days. Hosea 1, 11, 3, 4-5. 4. Hear what Joel says, But Judah shall dwell forever, and Jerusalem from generation to generation. Joel 3:20. 5. Hear what Amos says, And I will bring again the captivity of my people of Israel and they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and drink the wine thereof. They shall also make gardens and eat the fruit of them. And I will plant them upon their land, and they shall no more be pulled up out of their land which I have given them, saith the Lord thy God. Amos nine fourteen 14-15. 6. Hear what Obadiah says. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. Obadiah 1.17. 7. Hear what Micah says. In that day, saith the Lord, will I assemble her that halteth, and I will gather her that is driven out, and her that I have afflicted, and I will make her that halted a remnant, and her that was cast off a strong nation and the Lord shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth even forever. Micah 4, 6-7. 8. Hear what Zephaniah says. Sing, O daughter of Zion! Shout, O Israel! Be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem! The Lord hath taken away thy judgments, he hath cast out thine enemy. The King of Israel, even the Lord, is in the midst of thee, thou shalt not see evil any more. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear thou not, and to Zion, Let not thine hands be slack. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save, He will rejoice over thee with joy, He will rest in His love, He will joy over thee with singing. I will gather them that are sorrowful for the solemn assembly, who are of thee, To whom the reproach of it was a burden. Behold, at that time I will undo all that afflict thee, and I will save her that halteth, and gather her that was driven out, and I will get them praise and fame in every land where they have been put to shame. At that time will I bring you again, even in the time that I gather you, for I will make you a name and a praise among all people of the earth, when I turn back your captivity before your eyes saith the Lord zephaniah three fourteen to twenty nine hear what Zechariah says, and I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph, and I will bring them again to place them, for I have mercy upon them, and they shall be as though I had not cast them off, for I am the Lord their God, and will hear them, and they of Ephraim shall be like a mighty man and their hearts shall rejoice as through wine. Yea, their children shall see it, and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. I will hiss for them, and gather them, for I have redeemed them, and they shall increase as they have increased. And I will sow them among the people, and they shall remember me in far countries, and they shall live with their children, and turn again. I will bring them again also out of the land of Egypt, and gather them out of Assyria, and I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon, and place shall not be found for them. Zechariah 10, 6-10. And 10. Hear lastly what Jeremiah says. For lo, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel and Judah, saith the Lord, and I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. For I am with thee, saith the Lord, to save thee, though I make a full end of all nations, whither I have scattered thee, yet I will not make a full end of thee. But I will correct thee in measure, and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. Jeremiah thirty three eleven. I place these texts before you without note or comment. I only hope that you will weigh and examine them, and read or listen to carefully the several chapters from which they are taken. I believe there is one common remark that applies to them all. They all point to a time which is yet future. They all predict the final gathering of the Jewish nation from the four quarters of the globe, and the restoration to their own land. Much more could be said about this subject, but I am resolved, however, not to encumber it by bringing in topics of comparatively subordinate importance. I will not complicate it by elaborating on the manner in which Israel will be gathered and the particular events which will accompany the gathering. I might show you by scriptural evidence that the Jews will probably first be gathered in an unconverted state, though humbled, and will afterward, through much tribulation, be taught to look to Him whom they have pierced. I might speak of the future glory of Jerusalem, after the Jews are restored, and the last siege described by Zechariah and our Lord Jesus Christ, which it will endure. But I refrain. I will not travel beyond the bounds of my text. I think it better to present its weighty promise to you in its naked simplicity. Israel scattered will yet be gathered. This is the future hope and prospect of the Jews. Now, is there anything contrary to this gathering found in the New Testament? I cannot find a single word. Not only do I find nothing contrary to this, but also I do find a chapter in the Epistle to the Romans where an inspired apostle fully discusses the subject, and there he speaks of Israel being once more received into God's favor, grafted in, and saved. See Romans eleven fifteen to 32 Is there anything impossible in this gathering of Israel? Who talks of impossibilities? If an unbeliever, let him explain the present condition and past history of Israel, if he can. And when he has solved that mighty problem, we may listen to him. If a Christian, let him think again before he talks of anything being impossible with God. Let him read the vision of the dry bones in Ezekiel, and mark to whom that vision applies. Let him look to his own conversion and resurrection from the death of trespasses and sins, and then recall the unworthy thought that anything is too hard for the Lord. Is there anything inconsistent with God's former dealings in the gathering of Israel? Is there any extravagance in expecting such an event? Why should we say so? Reasoning from analogy, I can see no ground for refusing to believe that God may still do wonderful things for the Jewish people. It would not be more marvellous to see them gathered once more into Palestine than it was to see them brought from Egypt into the Promised Land. What God has done once, he may certainly do again. Is there anything improbable in the gathering of Israel? Oh, we are poor judges of probabilities. God's ways of carrying into effect His own purposes are not to be judged by man's standard or measured by the plumb line of what man calls probable. In the day when the children of Israel went out from Egypt, would anyone have said it was probable that such a nation of serfs would produce a book that would turn the world upside down? Yet that nation has done it. From that nation has come the Bible. Four thousand years ago, would anyone have said it was probable that God's Son would come to earth and suffer in the flesh on a cross before He came to earth in glory to reign? But that is what happened. Christ has lived, and Christ has suffered, and Christ has died. Away with this talk about improbabilities. The ways of God are not our ways. Finally, is there anything fanatical or overly enthusiastic in this expectation that Israel will be gathered? Why should you say so? Your own eyes tell you that the present order of things will never convert the world. There is not a church or a parish or a congregation where the converted are more than a little flock. There is not a faithful minister on earth, and never has been, who has ever seen more than the taking out of a people to serve christ acts 15:14 a change must come before the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the lord a new order of teachers must be raised up and a new dispensation ushered in these teachers i firmly believe will be converted jews and then will be seen the fulfillment of the remarkable words if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead Romans eleven fifteen I will not stay any longer on this branch of my subject. I leave it with one general remark which may sound to some listeners like a bald truism, whether it be a truism or not. I believe the remark to be of vital importance, and I heartily wish that it was more deeply impressed on all our minds. Settle it firmly in your mind, that when God says a thing will be done, we ought to believe it. We have no right to begin talking of probable and improbable, likely and unlikely, possible and impossible, reasonable and unreasonable. What is this but veiled skepticism and unbelief in disguise? What has the Lord said? What has He spoken? What do the Scriptures say? What is written in the Word? These are the only questions we have a right to ask, and when the answer to them is plain, we have nothing to do but believe. Our reason may rebel. Our preconceived ideas of what God ought to do may receive a rude shock. Our private systems of prophetic interpretation may be shattered to pieces. Our secret prejudices may be grievously offended. But what are we to do? We must abide by Scripture or be of all men most miserable. At any cost, let us cling to the word. Let God be true, but every man a liar. Romans 3 4. In all matters of unfulfilled prophecy, I desire to fall back on this principle. I see many things I cannot explain. I find many difficulties I cannot solve. But I dare not give up my principle. I am determined to believe everything that God says. I know it will all prove true at the last day. I read that He says in the text before us this day, He that scattered Israel will gather Him. Whatever the difficulties, it must be true. I steadfastly believe that Israel will be gathered. The Duty Which Gentile Churches Owe to Israel In touching on this point, I don't want you for a moment to suppose that the future gathering of Israel depends on anything that man can do. God's counsels and purposes are independent of human strength. The sun will set tonight at its appointed hour, and neither queens, lords, nor commons, popes, presidents, nor emperors can hasten, prevent, or put off its setting. The tides of the sea will ebb and flow this week in their regular course, and no scientific decree nor engineering skill can interfere with their motion. And in the same way, the promises of God concerning Israel will all be fulfilled in due season, whether we listen or not. When the times and the seasons arrive which God hath put in His own power, Acts 1, 7, Israel will be gathered, and all the alliances and combinations of statesmen and all the persecution and unbelief of apostate churches will not be able to prevent it. But since these things are coming, it would benefit us to be found doing the right things. It is our duty to seriously consider these questions. What manner of persons should we be and in what way can we testify to our full agreement with God's purposes for the Jews? Can we in no sense be fellow workers with God? Should we not remember that remarkable saying of Paul, Through your mercy they also may obtain mercy? Romans 11.31. These are the questions to which I now desire to supply a brief practical answer. The first duty, then, for Gentile Christians is to take a special interest in the spiritual condition of the Jewish nation and to give their conversion a special place in our prayers. I deliberately say their spiritual condition. I leave alone their civil and political position. I speak exclusively of our duty to Jewish souls. I say that we owe them a special debt and that this debt ought to be carefully paid. We prize our Bibles, and we are right to do so. A heaven without a sun would not be more blank than a world without a Bible. But do we ever consider that every page in that blessed book was written under God's inspiration by Israelite hands? Remember that every chapter and verse you read in your Bible, you owe under God to Israel. There's not a religious society that meets in London in the month of May which is not constantly working with Israelite tools. We prize the glorious gospel of the grace of God, and we are right to do so. A land without the gospel, like Tartary and China, is nothing better than a moral wilderness. See the vast difference between Europe and America with the gospel, notwithstanding all their vices, and Africa and Asia without it but do we ever think that the first preachers of that gospel were all Jews? The men who, at the cost of their lives, first carried from town to town the blessed tidings of Christ crucified were not Gentiles. The first to take up the lamp of truth, which was passed from hand to hand until it reached our heathen forefathers, were all men of Israel. We rejoice in Christ Jesus and glory in His person and work. It is good that we do. Without a living Savior and the blood of His atonement once made on the cross, we should indeed be miserable. But do we ever consider that when that Savior became a man, in order that as man's substitute he might live and suffer and die, he was born of a Jewish woman? Yes, let that never be forgotten. When God was manifest in the flesh, and was born of a woman, that woman was a virgin of the house of David. When the promised Savior took flesh and blood that He might bruise the serpent's head and redeem man, He did not take flesh and blood of any royal house among the Gentiles, but of one of the twelve tribes of Israel. I know that these are ancient things. They have been often urged, often alleged, often pressed on the attention of the churches. I am not ashamed to bring them forward again. If there be such a thing as gratitude in the heart of man, it is the duty of all Gentile Christians to take special interest in the work of doing good to the Jews. I believe, furthermore, that it is a duty of all gentile christians to be especially careful to remove stumbling blocks from the way of israel and to see that they do nothing to disgust them with christianity or hinder their conversion this is a matter which is expressly mentioned in scripture there we find isaiah bidding us take up the stumbling block out of the way of my god's people isaiah 57:14 Truly the prophet might well speak of this. No man can look around the Gentile churches and not see that he had cause. What can we say of the glaring unholiness and neglect of God's ten commandments which prevail so widely in Christendom? What can we say of the open, unblushing idolatry which offends the eye in all Roman Catholic churches? What can we say Of the widespread habit of Sabbath breaking, which is eating like a cancer into the heart of the Protestant churches. What can we say of the rationalistic method of interpreting Old Testament history that regards the histories of Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, and the like as so many myths or ingenious fables, but not as narratives of facts which really took place, and which has crept so extensively into modern commentaries? What can we say of the traditional mode of interpreting Old Testament prophecies in which so many Christians indulge? This system appropriates all the blessings to the church of Christ and hands over all the bitter things to poor, despised Israel, interprets all prophecies about Christ's first advent literally, and all prophecies about His second advent figuratively, requiring the Jew to believe the first to the letter but refusing in turn to believe the second, except in what is called by a sad misnomer, a spiritual sense. What can we say of all these things except that they are stumbling blocks, great stumbling blocks, in the way of the conversion of the Jews? What are they all but great barriers between the Jew and Christ, and barriers put up by Christian hands? We must all do our part to help take these stumbling blocks away. Here at least all may help. Here every Gentile Christian can aid the Jewish cause. The more pure and lovely we can make our holy faith, the more we are likely to recommend it to Israel. The more we can check the progress of the Roman apostasy and protest against its idolatries and corruptions, the more likely are the Jews to believe there is something in Christianity. The more we can promote the habit of interpreting all Scripture in its plain, literal sense, the more we are likely to remove prejudices in the minds of honest inquirers in Israel, and to make them ready to hear what we have to say. Finally, I believe it is a duty of all Gentile Christians to use special efforts to promote the conversion of the Jews. I say special efforts advisedly. The Jews are a peculiar people, a special people, and must be approached in a peculiar way. They are peculiar in their state of mind. They require an entirely different treatment from the heathen. Their objections are not the heathen's objections. Their difficulties are not the heathen's difficulties. They believe many things that the heathen have never heard of. They have a standard of right and wrong with which the heathen man is utterly unacquainted. Like the heathen, they need to be converted. Like the heathen, they need to be brought to Christ. But the lines of argument to be pursued with the Jew and the heathen are widely dissimilar. A faithful missionary who might do admirably well among the heathen might find it difficult to reason with a Jew. They are peculiar in their position in the world, they will not be found all assembled together like the Africans at Sierra Leone or the Hindus or New Zealanders or Chinese. They are emphatically a scattered people, a few in one country and a few in another. An effort to reach them must aim at nothing short of sending missionaries in search of them all over the world. Circumstances like these appear to me to point out clearly that nothing less than a special effort, will ever enable Christians to discharge their debt to Israel. There must be a division of labor in the mission field. There must be a special concentration of preaching, praying, and loving interactions with the Jewish people, or the churches of the Gentiles can never expect to do them much spiritual good. Without such special effort, the cause of Israel will inevitably be lost sight of in the cause of the whole heathen world. Without such special effort, I cannot see how the command of the text can be rightly obeyed. This is the claim that the London Society for Promoting Christianity amongst the Jews makes on English Christians in the present day for aid. It enables them to make a special effort on behalf of Israel. It supplies them with an outlet for their sympathy and a faithful agency for sending the gospel to God's ancient people. It is in this light that I earnestly commend the Society for the support of all who love the Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity and desire to do good in the world. I am quite aware that it is commonly said that the Society does nothing. Its results appear to some to be very small and insignificant. I think that those who make such an objection have probably never considered the very special character of the work which the Society does. Its field is necessarily a remarkably scattered one. Its agents are necessarily scattered widely apart one from another. The work that they do, by the very nature of things, makes far less show than the work of a united band of missionaries at Tinivelli or Sierra Leone. Tried by any fair standard, the work of the London Society for Promoting Christianity amongst the Jews has no cause to fear inspection. Its agents are bearing a testimony in some places and awakening in Israel thought, reflection, and inquiry. In others, they are gradually softening prejudices and helping Jews become willing to hold discussions or listen to gospel statements. In others, they are calling out a people and leading them to the foot of the cross. What more do we see going on at home? what greater results than these can be found in any congregation on earth where the gospel is preached? And, after all, duties are ours, and results are God's. As I conclude, I pray that God will impress on your minds the three following comments. Remember the special blessing which God has promised to all who care for Israel. Whatever a sneering world may say, the Jews are a people beloved for their fathers' sakes. Of Jerusalem it is written, They shall prosper that love thee. Psalm 122, 6. Of Israel it is written, Blessed is he that blesseth thee, and cursed is he that curseth thee. Numbers 24, 9. These promises are not yet depleted. We see their fulfillment in the blessing granted to the Church of England since the day when the Jewish cause was first taken up. We see their fulfillment in the special honor which God has put from time to time on individual Christians who have labored especially for the Jewish cause. Charles Simeon, Edward Bickersteth, Robert McChaney, Haldane Stewart, and Dr. Marsh are striking examples of what I mean. Do you desire God's special blessing? Then labor for the cause of Israel, and you will find it. Never forget the close connection which Scripture reveals between the time of Israel's gathering and the time of Christ's second advent to the world. In one psalm, it is expressly declared, When the Lord shall build up Zion, He shall appear in His glory. Psalm one hundred two sixteen Where is the true believer who does not long for that blessed day? Where is the true Christian who doesn't cry from the bottom of his heart Thy kingdom come? All Christians should work and give and pray so that the gospel may have free course in Israel and be glorified. The time to favor Zion is closely bound up with the restitution of all things. Blessed is that work that when complete will usher in the second coming of the Lord. Finally, make sure of your own salvation. Do not rest in mere head knowledge of prophetic subjects. Do not be content with intellectual soundness in the faith. Diligently make your own calling and election sure. Seek to know that your repentance and faith are genuine and true. Seek to feel that you are one with Christ, and Christ is in you, and that you are washed, sanctified, and justified. Then, whether the completion of God's promises to Israel be near or far away, your own portion will be sure. You will stand in your lot safely when the kingdoms of this world are passing away. You will meet Christ without fear when He comes the second time to Zion. You will join boldly in the song, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord! You will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God, and go out no more. The substance of this address was originally preached as the annual sermon on behalf of the London Society for Promoting Christianity amongst the Jews at the Rectory Church, Marylebone, in May 1858.